Let's just pray. Lord, as we come to your word, we recognize that these are difficult passages, difficult passages to read, to hear, to interpret. And we pray that you would speak to us and help us to glean something from them. Lord, we pray that we would be open to hear your word. Lord, encourage us and challenge us that we may hear you speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. At times of great difficulty, people often struggle and wonder, what is the point? What is the world coming to? What's the point of of all the, the suffering that they're going through? It may be a war, it may be a famine, it may be a, a, a pandemic. It may be not necessarily global things, but it can be a local thing. It can be something that happens just to a community or it can be a personal thing, a personal tragedy. And we wonder, what? why is God allowing this? What's the point? Those who are atheists don't really have a point. There is ultimately no reason. It's just survival of the fittest. And in that logic, suffering is just the means by which some people survive and others don't. Um, there's no comfort, no assurance, no rationale, no justice, nothing that would ease the, the persevering through difficult times, which would give us reasons to, to do so, reasons to hope, reasons to, to think that it will all come about good someday. Religions often try to to give big answers uh, to these big questions. And some have struggled. Some have answers that don't really quite fit. But in God's word, we find that he has given us big answers to big questions. They might not necessarily be the, the answers we would have looked for at times. He might... Even if we agree with what he is doing, he might do it a different way than what we might have expected. In Revelation, we find that God is showing us that at the end of the day, he is bringing justice to the world. At the end of the day, he is redeeming those who turn to him. There is redemption. There is freedom from the pain and the consequences of sin. There is hope. There is good news. And he shows us in, in various passages, in various different ways, the course of human history. Here in Revelation 15 to 16, we have the fifth cycle of visions. In this case, the, the seven bowls of God's wrath. Another perspective on human history. It's almost as if, it's not that the first visions were the first part of human history and then the second set of visions were followed by, you know, come after the first and then the third set of visions occur in history after the second and so on. And we get to the fifth and we, we're almost at the end. That is one way of interpreting Revelation, but it comes into problems where we end up seeing things that seem to apply towards the end but are happening already 
on things that seem to be irrelevant to us now because they might apply then. And this letter was written to the seven churches about their situation initially and primarily. And we have to see it in the light of being written to them on how they would have interpreted, interpreted it. So imagine, for example, the, the first set of visions might have been the history of the world from a European perspective. The second set of visions from an African perspective and so on. <clears throat> We're maybe now seeing the history of the world from an Asian perspective. So we're looking at the same thing from different perspectives. And the seven bowls of God's wrath can be seen to be the history of the world from another perspective. And yet, there's a sense in which there are hints, not just of this being a, a view of the history of the world and how God has been responding to to those who are his enemies but there's also there are also hints of the very end times and the references to, to the kings from the east in the sixth bowl and to Armageddon in the seventh bowl there's a sense in which as well as us being across time we're moving towards a conclusion Many people view human history from the point of view of shifts in power and prosperity from one global superpower to another over the centuries, where on the one hand things just seem to get better. The Industrial Revolution brought much prosperity. We can see the Celtic Tiger recently, 20 to 30 years ago, in Ireland brought a resurgence to the economy. Or in China, there is a resurgence of the economy there now. Or we can look on the, instead of just the rises, we can look at the falls, or the, the the ebbs and flows of of history. We can see that, well, there was a financial collapse 10 years ago, the rise in global terrorism, the, the 20 years ago with the Twin Towers, or with global warming in recent years. We can see human history from the, the ebb and the flow, the rise and fall of nations, of superpowers. But yet at the same time, there seems to be coming to a conclusion. We're coming to a situation where if we don't care for our planet, we're going to end up in very serious situation. We already are in a quite serious situation. It's almost as if we have brought things global warming on ourselves by mistreatment of the planet, by the pollution that we have brought. The environment is not as safe as it ought to have been. And yet these things are not just our hand. We see the hand of God through them as well. And we see his hand in natural disasters too. Why do these things happen? Some people think that the world ought to be just a good place where we can enjoy ourselves. We did have a good place where we could enjoy ourselves, but that was paradise, but mankind sinned. And we're in a world where there is blessing, but also 
punishment. There is the wrath of God is being poured out, as Romans one eighteen tells us. We're in a intermediate stage between the the paradise we did have at the start, and either a renewed paradise which will be far better, or the full condemnation of God's wrath. The joys of life and the blessings of life are to point us towards eternity with God. They give us glimpses of heaven. The difficulties of life give us glimpses of the alternative. In terms of the environment, we could look and see that, for example, in the fourth bowl, we could see what's described as global warming with which results in, in fires breaking out all over the world. For example, if, if you look at a, a map of the different fires that have been breaking out recently in different parts of the world, well, according to the European Space Agency, fire affects at the moment an estimated 4 million square kilometres each year. That's about the size of Western Europe, or about half the size of the USA. Or consider the second bowl where the sea turned blood red and everything in it died. These things are difficult to interpret, but might that be reflected in some of the things that we're seeing? For example, Lake Karachi in central Russia is the most polluted place on earth. The air is heavy with toxic smog, the ground is full of radioactive isotopes, and the water has turned red from the various hazardous chemicals that are dumped there. If you were to spend one hour in that water, you would die. Or the sixth bowl, the, the drying up of the Euphrates River. There's a sense in which that's similar to, say, the drying up of, of the what were formerly grasslands. Like the Sahara Desert is expanding since this time a hundred years ago, the Sahara has expanded the size of six and a half times the size of Ireland. In a hundred years, six and a half Irelands have gone from being lush green farmland to being desert. Or consider the Aral Sea. On the left, there was a, an image of what it looked like some years ago from space but on the right it's, it's drying up it's between Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan the eastern basin is dried up and the southern basin is now called the Aralkum Desert these are not necessarily the fulfilment of some of these bowls but they give us glimpses that that maybe what is happening to us is in some way reflected the the problems that we have in the environment, the problems that we suffer are not necessarily just environmental problems. These could be God's bowls being poured out, God's wrath being poured out on the earth. there's at least a striking parallel to some degree between what we read and what we are experiencing. There may be a small, <clears throat> partial fulfilment of them. 
Yet at the same time, there have been drought, forest fires and earthquakes for many centuries. Right back at this, in Genesis, we read of a terrible famine. There was a drought and a famine that, where Joseph ended up having to help out. And that led his family to settle in Egypt. And yet there's a sense in which things are getting worse. The environment isn't what it used to be. Maybe it's because we're hearing more about it. Maybe it's just that we've got better access to news than people had a few hundred years ago. But it seems to be more than just that. The question is, and especially for young people who are very concerned about their, the environment, and who actually, the younger people are, at least in the West, the less of a sense of God they have. There's less of a, of a God-based worldview. They don't have the understanding of their parents or grandparents or great-grandparents who might have been brought up in a wor- to understand that the world was made by God. God is going to bring a new heavens and a new earth. God is in control. At least their grandparents or great-grandparents might have had some framework of understanding how the world fits. But they don't. And so they're a lot more concerned, a lot more frightened. What does the future hold? Well, the Bible tells us that the fate of the world is not simply down to human energy consumption and environmental pollution, but it's in the hands of God. And he has his saving purposes that he's working out in the world. What can we see from Revelation chapter 15 to 16. These are difficult chapters. And I don't think we can conclusively say, oh, this points to that, that we can hold our Bible in the one hand and our newspaper in the other and join the dots. The early church, the churches that received this letter in the first place didn't have 21st century news to join the dots. If we see it through the lens of these seven churches to whom it was written, we should be able to see that God is speaking more generally. The first thing that we can see is, oh, there's another picture of uh, what the RLC looks like, where the ships used to be on the seashore or in the docked near the the edge of the sea they're just in the middle of a desert now but the first thing that we can see is the glory of God in Revelation 15 verses 5 to 8 there's a summary of the, the seven bowls and Revelation chapter 16 goes into detail as to what they are and the last four verses of Revelation 15, we have the perspective from heaven. What is happening? What is being given? The glory of God, the, the pre- his presence in the temple. Revelation 16, we're seeing it from the perspective of those who receive what is given from the perspective of the world. In Revelation 15, verses 5 to 8, we see references to the wilderness wanderings of the people who've been freed from Egypt. 
when people use keywords, they trigger thoughts in our heads. And the, the Greek that John was writing in used references to the Greek translation of the Hebrew for the tent of meeting. And the fact that the temple is described as being filled with smoke from God's glory also points to the tabernacle in the wilderness. The cloud of the Lord hovered over the tabernacle during the day and at night fire glowed inside the cloud so the whole family of Israel could see it. This continued throughout all their journeys. There's a sense in which our journey on earth now is paralleled by the journey of the Israelites. The people of God, the church, now is journeying and we will one day enter into that promised land. But at the minute we are in this wilderness stage where we are wondering, but God's presence is with us. And the description of the, the temple in Revelation 15 and the cloud has echoes of Exodus chapter 40. And with the seven plagues in Revelation 16 being so similar to the plagues that Moses brought down on Pharaoh in Egypt, the imagery of Revelation 15 to 16 takes us right back to Exodus. And if we want to understand Revelation, we need to know what was happening in Exodus. In the wilderness, the tabernacle, the tent in which the Holy of Holies symbolized God's holy presence, it was inaccessible except to the high priest once a year. And God's holiness was displayed through the separateness of his presence from the people. Only a high priest could come in and mediate on behalf of the people. And in Revelation 15, 8, we read, The temple was filled with smoke from God's glory and power. No one could enter the temple until the seven angels had completed pouring out the seven plagues. There's a sense of finality here, a sense of hope nevertheless. Once the seven plagues have been poured out, once God's judgment on the earth has run its course, people can come into the temple, into God's presence. People couldn't go into the temple or couldn't go into the, the Holy of Holies or the, the temple later on in Jerusalem into the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest could once a year. People wanted to be able to go into God's presence. But now we're told that in Revelation, once the bowls have been poured out, people can come into his presence. It's almost as if the temple is open we know that the way into the temple is through the blood of Jesus. On his death, at his death, the curtain in the temple in Jerusalem was torn in two, symbolizing the fact that by the death of Jesus, access to God has now been made available. It was available all the time for those in the Old Testament to place their faith in God. But what we see in the death of Jesus is that it was his death that actually made all those people who had previously trusted in God's means of sacrifice 
enter into his presence. It's through the death of Jesus that we can enter into his presence. But taking that temple imagery and going into the presence of God, it's almost as if these plagues, once they are over, we go into his presence. Uh, And once these sufferings on earth are over, we will go into his presence and live with him forever, where there will be no more death or sorrow or suffering or pain any longer. The second thing we can see is that there's the wrath of God. When it comes to teaching the Bible in passages like this, we end up finding it difficult. They're difficult to preach, they're difficult to hear. But there's a verse keeps coming back to my mind as we go through these difficult chapters in Revelation. And it's it's what Paul writes to Timothy. Preach the word of God. Be prepared whether the time is favorable or not. Patiently correct, rebuke, and encourage your people with good teaching. In season and out of season, whether it's popular or not, we have to preach the whole word of God. One way to ensure that we're not just picking our favorite topics or passages is to preach through whole books of the Bible. And in that way, God sets the agenda. The next passage to preach on is the next passage after the one we've just done. And so we're not choosing on the bits we want. At the time of the Enlightenment or around the Reformation, there was there was one person who, I've forgotten his name. Um, it might have been Erasmus, but I can't be certain. He didn't like certain parts of the the New Testament or certain parts of the Bible so he chopped them out and he didn't like more parts so he chopped them out and what he ended up with was a very small New Testament and sometimes we're prone to do that ourselves we have our favourite passages and we go to them we ignore other parts of the Bible well We have to be aware of the full breadth of God's teaching. And we're under obligation to preach all of the Bible. So here we are in a chapter that is a difficult chapter. When it comes to interpreting the seven bowls of God's wrath, the symbolism in them Again, it seems to be pointing quite clearly to the plagues of Moses in Egypt. The the seven bowls as a whole seem to be pointing back to the situation as a whole that Moses had before Pharaoh. Where Pharaoh was obstinate, he would not let God's people go. He had been oppressing them more and more. They were opposed they were discriminated against they were they suffered many things at the hand of an evil king Moses was there to liberate God's people and when Pharaoh was set against God's people the Moses did the plagues brought down the plagues upon him and the people as a warning they didn't have to come to them if if they had only let the people go. 
but they would not. And the more they would not turn, the more they would not repent, another plague came, and another plague came. And we see that pattern here in Revelation chapter 16. The world is hostile to God. The world needs a God in their lives. We're created, we're designed to have God in our lives. People need that God-shaped hole in their lives filled. But people turn to all different kinds of solutions, religions that will try and fill that hole, but it's not the right religion. It doesn't really fit. And at the same time, as well as being very religious, they can be very much against God. They can be very much against God's people. Today, far more than in the in the first century, far more than around the time John was writing to the churches under persecution from Rome, people are being persecuted for their faith. Christians are being martyred around the world. Not everywhere is as hostile to Christianity as, as some places, but there are some parts of the world where churches are being demolished, churches are being bombed, Christians are being killed on far too regular a basis. It doesn't really make the, the agenda for the news in the West that much, but it is reality for some people in different parts of the world. And well, in Revelation 16, verses 6 and 7, we see a direct link between God's judgment and the martyrdom of Christians. I would suggest that God's wrath is not limited primarily against those who were martyred or against God's prophets who were killed by God's enemies, but instead that these are representatives of those reasons why God is angry against everyone who opposes him. He is angry against those who oppose his people those who oppose his prophets, his messengers, those who take his word to the world. At heart, people are opposing God himself. Just like Jesus says to Paul when he was persecuting the early church, as he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. As Jesus had already taught, insofar as you do it to the least of one of these, my brothers and sisters, you do it to me. When Saul was persecuting the church, he was persecuting Christ. When people are opposing God's people and God's ways, they're ultimately opposing him. We, we're in a spiritual battle. We're in a world where it's a battlefield between good and evil, between those who want to follow God and those who don't. The churches to which John wrote were reassured that their suffering was not unnoticed. God is telling them here that your suffering is not, un, is not forgotten. It is not wasted. 
God knew what they were going through and in his time he would deal with it. And so too when, when we are suffering at the hands of, of those who oppose truth, godliness, opposing God, you can be reassured that God will bring justice for all the wrongs that have been done. We can leave these situations into his hands knowing that he will bring justice one day. We can leave matters to God. We can forgive. But we don't need to be eaten up with vengeance and consumed by the needs to get justice, to get... It doesn't always happen here on earth, but it will happen before God. We can rest assured that he will right all wrongs and that if we have trusted in Christ, we will be in his presence forever. The third point that we can see here is it's, it's something we need to tackle. It's a famous word, Armageddon. When it comes to interpreting what Armageddon refers to, we can't be sure. There are many people who will join the dots of politics and superpowers and say the kings from the east are going to come over to the Middle East and there's going to be a global war. But as we've looked at beforehand a few chapters ago, the concept of all the kings and nations assembling together in the Middle East, it's logistically not possible to have such big armies meeting together all in one small piece of land. There aren't the, the roads or the airports to bring in just even the food that they need to survive on. If we take Revelation as a highly symbolic book, then there's no reason why we shouldn't take reference to Armageddon symbolically as well. This is a highly symbolic book and you've got the unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the dragon, the beast and the false prophet who assemble the kings of the whole world to battle on that great day of God. That seems to be describing symbol symbolism. And so the place, the mountain of Megiddo, Armageddon, <coughs> that seems to be a reference to the victory that Deborah had, she led God's people at the city of Megiddo. She led them to, to victory where they had scarcely a shield or a spear amongst the 40,000 warriors there. When they faced an army that was so well armed, they even had 900 chariots amongst other things. Morris points out that their position was hopeless. God's people looked as though they were going to be slaughtered. And yet the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army, which we can read of in, in Judges chapter 4. At Megiddo, God routed all those who were set up to crush his people, who were ultimately against him. And it seems as though what we're being told here in Revelation chapter 16 is a reference to Armageddon is to let, encourage us to look back to what happened at Megiddo, at that mountain of Megiddo, Armageddon. 
so many centuries beforehand that God will fight for his people. God will overcome. The church that John was writing to might have felt weak. It might have felt insignificant, powerless against the might of the Roman Empire. But on that last day, on that judgment day, the day of battle, God will fight for his people. God will right the enemy. That seems to be a a more preferable interpretation than one that the early church would have understood. One which isn't dependent upon understanding superpowers and politics and and the balance of power and, and so on. But again, we cannot be sure. We cannot say for certain. But one thing is clear that in Revelation chapter 16 we have a call to repentance. Isaiah tells us the Lord will come as he did against the Philistines at Mount Perizim and against the Amorites at Gibeon. He will come to do a strange thing. He will come to do an unusual deed. When God comes in justice, in punishment, in wrath, What Isaiah tells us is that this doesn't come naturally to God. This isn't his preferred work. This is his strange work. An unusual thing for him. This is not what he loves to do. Like a parent who might be disciplining a child who is repeatedly about to get itself into danger or repeatedly just going off the rails. The parent finds that they need to discipline the child. It can be many different ways. A popular way today is to take away their screens, their screen time, their devices. And parents, loving parents, don't relish in punishing or disciplining a child. But it's necessary sometimes. Similarly, God does not relish coming in wrath and judging people. It's a strange work. Mercy, forgiveness, is his preferred work. That's how he prefers to respond to people. In Psalm 30, verse 5, we read, For his anger lasts only a moment, but his favour lasts a lifetime. Weeping may last through the night, but joy comes with the morning. The purposes of God are are clear in Revelation chapter 16. They're not just judgment, but there's a dual purpose of bringing people to repentance. In verse 9 and verse 11 we read, They did not repent of their sins and turn to God and give him glory, but they did not repent of their evil deeds and turn to God. We can see here that what God is doing is trying to get people to turn to him. His wrath has a dual purpose. It is justice. Just like in the courts, just like when somebody might have a a sentence, whether it's in prison or whether it's community service or whether it's a fine, the purpose is not simply punitive, but it's also restorative to try and get people to come back to a a good way of 
living with others. And so too, in God's wrath, he has dual purpose. There is wrath, but there's also warning. As we've often noted in contexts like this, C.S. Lewis has written that God speaks to us in his gentle voice in our pleasures. And he speaks, he, he whispers in our pleasures, but he speaks to us in our conscience. We don't have to have known the Bible. We don't have to have been brought up in church to know right from wrong. God has written his law in our hearts and minds. It's clearer if we read the Bible for certain. But even people all over the world, everyone, people who have not come across Christianity or God's revealed word, they know right from wrong. Their conscience speaks to them. But when people don't listen, God shouts in our pain. C.S. Lewis writes. And that's what we see in the world today. God is shouting at people through the droughts, the fires, the environmental disasters, the financial crises, the, the pandemic, even personal situations that are unique to our own, to, to individuals. God shouts at us to turn to him. And many do. Praise God. Many find comfort and relief, forgiveness, acceptance before God when they place their faith in Christ. But many do not. And as we read here, many blame God instead of turning to him for deliverance. At the end of chapter 16, they cursed God because of the terrible plague that they had suffered. Instead of turning to God for help, they're just cursing him. God is holding out salvation, and yet they will not have it. God calls us to turn to him. He uses his temporary wrath to warn us of an eternal wrath to come. He is just in all that he does, so his wrath is not unjust. but he is patient. Again, as Paul tells us in Romans 2, don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? But because you're stubborn and refuse to turn from your sin, you're storing up terrible punishment for yourself. For a day of anger is coming when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Paul is not saying this in a condemnatory way. He's saying this in a way to try and get people to see where they're at so that they will realize their predicament, so that they will place their faith in Christ. God's wrath is meant to lead us to repentance. We don't realize that the difficulties that we suffer, that the God's wrath that we see here and now is so little compared to the true wrath against sin that will come later on. 
we know what it's like to be in a pandemic, but this isn't the worst of pandemics. The, the, the death rate is, it's bad, but it's still around about 1% for those who have no protection or vaccination or anything. There have been other pandemics which have had up to a third or half of the people in certain cities, like the, the plague in London a few hundred years ago. Half of the people in some cities died. When we look at how can we survive these things, we see that right back in 1796, Edward Jenner, a doctor, he'd been studying smallpox, a plague which is very deadly. But he found that the there was some truth to the fact that farmers who had encountered cowpox were a lot less susceptible to, to smallpox. And so he developed a vaccine using cowpox to inoculate people against smallpox. And when people got sick with cowpox, they, yes, they got sick. But it was nothing like the illness that they would get with smallpox, where they would very often die. A vaccination is intended to give us a little of what the real thing is in order to inoculate us from it. And God's wrath, the little that he gives us here and now, is meant to inoculate us against the judgment to come by getting us to turn to Christ. God's wrath, in a sense, is there to, to lead us to turn to Christ. If God was uncaring, if God was unmerciful, he wouldn't bother with us. He would just let us go our merry way and then, at the end of the day, bring judgment on us and say, where did that come from? But he doesn't in his mercy. He gives us warnings. He gives us a little taste of what is to come so we will turn from it. And it doesn't matter what we've done. It doesn't matter how great our sins have been, how long they have occurred for. There is more forgiveness on the cross than anything we could do. There is nothing that is unforgivable other than refusing forgiveness itself. That's the only unforgivable sin. Refusing the work of the Holy Spirit leading us towards God. Doesn't matter how good we have been compared to others. We're still infinitely worse than Jesus who had never sinned at all. So let's leave off what we have done whether we think it was good or whether we think it was terrible, whether it was terrible in many cases. Let's put those at the foot of the cross and let's turn to Jesus, knowing that his blood cleanses us from all unrighteousness. In him there is life. In him there is acceptance, adoption into God's family. In him we become new people. In him we have eternal life by the power of his Holy Spirit. Just as Jesus was resurrected from the dead, 
we come from spiritual death to spiritual life. Just as Jesus sins or bore our sins on the cross, we find that our sins are gone. Although they were as red as scarlet, they are now as white as snow. So, when we know of God's wrath to come through the things that we experience now, we know we know in the cross of Christ that God takes sin seriously. We know in the, in the things that we experience in the world that God takes things seriously. But we have a way out. Christ died on the cross that we might be forgiven, that we place our faith in him and we are instantly justified, right with God, assured of going to heaven because of what Christ has done that covers all that we have done or do. Revelation chapters 15 to 16 give us an insight into God's wrath but also an insight into God's mercy and an insight into the fact that it is coming to an end. The question is, where will we be with respect to God when the end comes? Let's place our faith in him and let's thank him if we have done so for his mercy and grace towards us. And let's look forward, let's persevere knowing that he has all things in his hands. He has all things in his control. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, we thank you for your love and mercy towards us. We thank you for our forgiveness on the cross. And we pray that you would help us to persevere, help us to to leave judgment to you, but help us, Lord, to bring the gospel to others that they may know of the mercy and love of God in Christ Jesus and that they may avoid your wrath to come. We thank you there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ, even now, because of your mercy and love towards us. Amen.